In this episode, I have on guest John Faircloth. He's a financial advisor from Riverwalk Wealth Advisors. We go over everything about the questions that one should ask when choosing a financial advisor to the current state of our country's economy. It is my pleasure to have him here on my podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Unplugged. Today, I have John. He is coming out of Tampa, Florida. He's a financial advisor. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to share his story and how he came to be a financial advisor. Hey, John. Hi, Christian. Thanks for having me. Hey, so yeah, we were briefly speaking about, you know, how you got into this business and you uh, said how it wasn't really your, your first initial goal and um, how you used to live in New York and you were a limo driver and how that kind of got you into this business. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that, you know, you said it's a fairly new industry and uh, I, I, could, I could relate that a lot of people you know, go to college, uh, kind of for one thing, and then they come out and, you know, life, life changes, life evolves. And, um, uh, you know, the jobs that are going to be out in 10 years aren't even, uh, don't even exist yet. So, right. uh, this is a great, great, uh, you know, example. So yeah, you said you were a limo driver. Yeah. So, uh, I, I had a brief stint, uh, in the army where I had an injury, uh, that didn't allow me to, uh, to, to stay there. Uh, and then after that, I hadn't quite finished college yet. Uh, so I had a buddy in the army who said, Hey, you know, you should drive limousines, uh, while you're finishing college. Uh, cause there's a lot of downtime when you're waiting for someone at an airport or waiting for someone, you know, in the city, uh, you can break out a book and, and study. And he, he was sure enough, he was right about that. Um, so, you know, after the army, you know, I, I was going to be a history teacher. Uh, that was, that was the goal. And then, um, you know, went through the program there. I love history, but I didn't really like the teaching part. Uh, and I had gotten so far into the program. It was just in my mind anyway, it was too late to switch over to business. So I just continued down that path. But uh, while I was driving limousines, uh, a lot of the clients that we had were investment bankers uh, at all the big banks, right? You, you, you run down the list of them, but uh, pretty much I picked up someone from all of them at the time. Uh, and, and you get to talk into some of these people and then you realize that, uh, you know, they're, they're very successful people. They have a lot of value to offer. Uh, and, uh, that's what kind of turned me on to it. It, it was a lot of uh, getting, just getting to know people and networking and uh, seeing the lifestyles that they lived coming from a kid who, you know, myself grew up in a military family. Uh, we didn't go to Broadway shows. You know, we didn't go to classical music concerts. We didn't go to the Met uh, to see it, to see a show. Uh, our big idea of a day out was going to the mall, you know, back in the eighties uh, and nineties. So it was just a lifestyle that I hadn't previously been exposed to. Uh, And I thought, you know, hey, why don't don't I do that? I mean, I was pretty directionless at that point in my life. Uh, Again, you know, the the military career didn't work out due to injury. You didn't like, you know, teaching history. Uh, I really, I didn't have a whole lot in the hopper at that point. So I went to financial services and uh, it turned out to be the best decision I ever made. Yeah. And how long have you been doing that now? So I got into that in 1998. So this is my 24th year now. Okay. So seems like you liked it and, you know, took off. Um, what is, you know, what is this job, you know, kind of 
Is it all online mostly now, nowadays? Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, prior to COVID, I would say it was 100% offline. Uh, everything was in person. Uh, you know, people just did not want to connect via Zoom. Uh, people did not want to connect remotely. Uh, you know, they, they very much wanted to be face-to-face, eye-to-eye with their advisor. COVID changed all that. Uh, it is a very, very different world. And it's, it's ironic. One of the companies I worked for uh, back around 2008, 2009, uh, started to fiddle with remote advising. Uh, they actually had a whole studio set up in our office, and this mm-hmm. was a this was a on a on a big campus in New Jersey. Uh, you know, literally ten thousand people worked at this campus, but they had these studios set up. So back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, it wasn't as simple as setting up a laptop, uh, turning the camera on and rolling. Uh, video conferencing, twelve, thirteen years ago, was a complicated endeavor, um, and they tried it and it didn't work. And you know, uh, I don't know if there was ever really any true support for it, but it was tried 12 or 13 years ago, didn't work. Flash forward to 2022, uh, and I can tell you flat out, you know, people are way more willing to do it now than they were in 2019 prior to COVID. Uh, so overwhelmingly, there has been a just a, a massive, massive shift in consumer preferences uh, to going from must seeing an advisor face-to-face to being okay with mm-hmm. seeing them virtually face to face, just a just a massive massive shift. Uh, I'm not sure if it's going to stick, uh, but I, I it seems like it's going to because there are literally billions of dollars uh, in motion right now uh, from people that are moving their assets from one advisor to another, and for the most part, it's all being done virtually. Right. It's um. It's just you know matter of trust. And a lot of people, COVID seems to speed up that advancement. And um, yeah. yeah, the phrase I've heard used a lot is tech acceleration. Uh, yeah. Is uh, the 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 COVID caused a tech acceleration? So all of these things that that we're seeing right now were going to happen maybe in ten years. It just trim that ten year time frame down to two. Uh, so that's that's the yeah. phrase that I've heard uh, and that I like to use is the tech acceleration. Definitely. Yeah. Like even I, uh, you know, I, I uh, got into crypto and there's uh, this app called Coinbase and I'm sure it's, it's very popular. They even had a Super Bowl ad. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I just felt comfortable investing into something, an app and, you know, it's a, and even cryptocurrency, which is mm-hmm. something that is, you know, kind of gaining trust recently. Mm-hmm. Do you, yep. uh, is that something you're, you're uh, kind of going towards? Well, it's, it's actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually have, I have a meeting with a congressman, uh, believe it or not, in two weeks, uh, a, a fairly, I won't, I can't name the name, but a fairly highly placed congressman um, to give him a presentation on crypto, um, basically the ins and outs of it, how it works, um, that kind of thing. So it's, it's going to be, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I don't know if there is an expert out there. Um, I, I, there's, there's a lot of knowledge out there, but it's in one of those situations where the, the industry is so young. I don't know if there's, there's an expert. I mean, and I, I think back mm-hmm. to the early internet era, uh, and I don't know how, how old you are, but if you think back to the early internet era, uh, and, and back when the guys who founded Yahoo were mm-hmm. considered, you know, on the cutting edge and genius in 1995 and 96, 
but you flash forward five years, I mean, Yahoo was essentially out of business. I mean, I know they're still around, but I mean, you know, their, their search got replaced by Google. Uh, their, their email got replaced by Hotmail for a time and then Gmail. Uh, but it, it's interesting. So I, 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 I'm leery to name someone an expert in, in a very, very young industry because industries like that change so fast. Uh, someone yeah. who's an expert today uh, could be the village idiot in two or three years. That, and we saw that, it happen with the yeah. internet. Yeah, that, that is true. Everything is just advancing. More things are happening in a short span. Um, so, you know, navigating in this new technology, technological age just really does take a lot of like, uh, like an ability to adapt and just, you know, yep. kind of have, I guess, a principle to go by. Because yep. um, it's hard to, uh, you know, gather all the information because a lot of stuff gets outdated before, <laughs> before uh, yeah. it starts. Well, and that's, and that's, that's a really good point too. So just recently I wrote a commentary uh, about this whole situation in Russia and how it's affecting the economy and how it could affect asset prices and all that. I wrote it on Friday mm-hmm. by Monday. It, I had to change it because so many things changed. Uh, yeah. So just over Saturday, Sunday, I mean, I had to not completely rewrite it, but um, definitely rewrite components of it because uh, of some of the sanctions that were put in over the weekend, uh, how it, it just completely changed everything that was happening there. Uh, so yeah, the, the data flow right now, and it was really fascinating around COVID because uh, when the markets first kind of crashed in the COVID era, uh, you know, I was just talking about this to someone the other day, like the data flow was so fast. I mean, you'd go to bed at 11 or 12 o'clock at night thinking one thing, you wake up in the morning at 6 a.m., you know, and check your phone and the whole narrative had completely changed overnight. Um, That's kind of what we're experiencing now on a smaller level. Um, You know, the COVID was much more violent of a sell-off in markets versus what we're seeing here. Uh, But it's interesting how the data flow uh, is is very, very similar in that you go to bed thinking one thing, by the time you wake up, the narrative has completely changed. Yeah, volatile. Is that... Is that right to say volatile? Absolutely, yeah. Definitely volatile markets. Uh, whenever you have multiple percentage moves, uh, not only over the course of a week, but over the course of hours, uh, that is, yeah, that's extremely volatile. Very, we're in a very, very volatile period. Yeah. What do you What do you advise people? You know. Yeah, so we, what we do, I mean, we do a lot of personal financial advising. So we always start off with talking to the person about their individual financial plan first. Uh, that's really the most important thing for us. We try to stay away from cookie cutter advice. So the people that you see on TV, mm-hmm. uh, and again, I won't name names, um, but you know, the people that have like TV shows and specials and all that and, and write books, uh, they're, 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 you know, t- telling the masses basically, you know, get your budget under control mm-hmm. and save more, right? I mean, that's always the very first thing anybody should do. So if you're struggling saving money month to month, yeah, go pick up a book uh, on, on basic financial planning. Again, there's multiple names out there. Uh, simple Google search will point you in the right direction on that. So learn how to budget your money. So we deal with people uh, primarily that, have, that got that down. Right. So they, they, they've gotten their monthly budget under control. Uh, they can save X amount of dollars per month. And hopefully they've been doing that for a few years to allow some funds to build up. Uh, and then we talk to them about risk uh, primarily. Uh, that's really the number one thing that we do is, is the psychological aspect of investing is really, 
you know, uh, I believe not mm-hmm. talked about enough. Uh, a lot of what we do is behavioral management. Uh, I can't tell you how many times during March of 2020, right in the middle of COVID, I was begging people to not sell everything. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the markets were down 30, 35%. I'm like, no, please do not sell here. Um, there were plenty of people that did. Uh, and unfortunately, this is behavior that I saw back in March of 2009. Uh, not a lot of people realize this, but in March of 2009, uh, when the market bottomed out from the 2008 global financial crisis, um, I forget the exact day, I think it was March 5th, March 6th, mm-hmm. something like that, uh, of 2009, there were more sells placed that day by individual investors than at any other day in recorded history. And that was the bottom of the market. So people literally threw up their hands at the market lows and said, I can't take anymore and sold all their stuff. And then they missed out on the rebound. Uh, A lot of people repeated that mistake in March of 2020. Uh, They sold at the bottom uh, and never made it back. That was against everybody's advice. Uh, I think at that point, at at some point, you do have to just accept the risk of investing sometimes and move forward. But um, to answer your question, you know, what what do we do? I think the behavioral side of it, um, not only at the very beginning of a a relationship with a client, really kind of figuring out how risky they want to be and how do they define risk. Mm -hmm. Because I'll tell you this, Krishna, I've had people tell me with a million dollars to invest that um, a a two or three thousand dollar move in a day gives them all kinds of anxiety and that's 0.2 percent you know yeah. two or three thousand of a million now i've also had people tell me like with a hundred grand uh they say hey listen if it goes down to fifty thousand i don't care because uh, i know over the long run i'm going to make it back you know so it, it's really it's all about the individual investor and i'll tell you one more anecdote story the the most risky inv- investor that i ever worked with on an individual level uh, was a 90-year-old World War II veteran. Yeah. Now, what we're trained to do in our industry, uh, and, and I don't necessarily agree with this, and this, this example is going to spell out exactly why, uh, the riskiest investor I ever worked with was a 90-year-old World War II bomber pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said to me, because uh, I asked him one time, I was like, Bill, you know, why are you taking all this risk in your portfolio? You're 90 something years old. Like you're supposed to be slowing down at this age. And he said to me, and I'll never forget it. He said, the things that I had to do and the things that I saw when I was a young man doing bombing runs over Germany, that is risk to me. That's yeah. the most riskiest thing I ever did in my life. Yeah. Everything after that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, and I was fascinated by that. And I, and I drew an important lesson from that is to never just assume uh, because someone is older that they're going to mm-hmm. be more conservative. Because I'll tell you what, the very next day after that conversation, uh, I met with a Amazon executive, a very successful young woman, late 20s, uh, no more than that, late 20s. Um, multiple millions of dollars to invest Mm -hmm. and she didn't want to take on any risk at all. And her big thing was Mm -hmm. during the financial crisis, uh, during 2008, 2009, she saw how financial struggles destroyed her family. Parents got divorced, 
So she didn't want to take on any risk at all. So it's really about perspective. Uh, so, you know, again, what, what a book will tell you and how the industry trains people is that that young Amazon woman, uh, yeah. the young with, with all those millions had, could have taken all the risk in the world because she's young, right. has a long time horizon, all that. And the 90 year old guy mm -hmm. shouldn't have been taking on any risk at all because, you know, he's probably not going to live to be 110. Uh, so he doesn't have enough time to make it all back if he loses half of it. Um, but those are two examples that, that really stress, you know, how we do things, uh, at least how the industry should work is really customize everything to the individual investor. Yeah, that's, you know, I guess that, you know, is what a personal financer would do is kind of look at the individual yeah, uh, and see where they're at and their relationship to money. And then also see their, what age they're in yep. and, um, you know, work with them and their goals. Yeah, it's a lot of it's education, you know, um, a lot of it's education uh, it, when you talk to people about risk and help them help them really visualize it and understand it. Um, but, and I think, you know, the industry in general, it, it's too concerned about money, it's too concerned about revenues, it's too concerned about fees and commissions yeah. generated. And that generally is not coming from the individuals that you meet. Like our industry, I can't tell you, there are so many good, honest, hardworking people that are financial advisors. Uh, there's also some that are not. Uh, there are some out there that are looking to make a quick buck. Um, and unfortunately, the industry does allow some of those people to thrive. So from your perspective, from an individual um, an individual investor's perspective, if someone's seeking out financial advice, that's your biggest hurdle. Your biggest hurdle is how do I filter out the people who are in this to make a quick buck versus the people I want to find someone who really cares about me and my family and my finances. That's the biggest hurdle that I think individual investors have is finding the right person, finding the right advisor. Yes. Have you ever had uh, people that you just didn't, you like, you had to fire the client? Like, you, you know, they just, Oh yeah, that that's mm -hmm. yeah, that's really rare. Um, mm -hmm. I had to do that a couple of years ago. Uh, the one thing I don't tolerate um, is abusing my staff. Um, mm. I'm not going to have anybody. I don't care how much money you have, come into my office and treat my people poorly. Yeah. Um, you know, the the people that I work with and work for me, uh, they're like my family right? Yeah. Uh, you're not going to come in and curse at them. You're not going to come in and berate them. You're not going to come in and belittle them. Mm -hmm. You treat them with the same respect as you would anybody else. Yeah. Uh, so there was an incident a few years ago um, where, where I had to let, I had to, had to fire those clients. Um, they, I just was not going to allow them to treat my people that way. Uh, and that's really, that's a rarity. Uh, it's not really mm -hmm. something that, you know, I, I, I've had to do often. Um, Usually, if there's a disagreement in investment philosophy, for example, uh, the clients will find another advisor before I fire before I have to fire them. Uh, mm -hmm. That has happened. You know, I'll give you another example. Uh, you know, this this one client had been super conservative for years and years and years because she was saving for um, this motorcycle trip that she wanted to take through Central America into South America and then back up to the U.S. Uh, so she didn't want to take any risk in the market, just super, super conservative. And then March 2009 hit, excuse me, uh, March of 2020 hit with COVID. Um, mm. And she wanted to ramp up risk. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. You know, I mean, that's what we were advising clients to do at the time was to take on a little more risk because stocks got really, really cheap. Um, 
but she she went beyond that <laughs> like she was she was investing in the riskiest of the riskiest things mm-hmm. uh things that get financial advisors like me into trouble so i was like you know mm, let's pump the brakes here let's let's reassess what you're doing let's let's, mm-hmm. let's make sure we're all on the same page with risk because if the thing is if like if those things go under like you know all of that all those all that years of saving for this motorcycle trip that she wanted to do with her husband were gone yeah and we we could just never get on the same page uh with 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 what she wanted to do and like the things that she was asking me to do were borderline not legal everything was legal but but borderline putting my career at risk and that's something else that's that's a red line i'm not going to put my career at risk uh, because you all of a sudden change your investment philosophy. And if our investment philosophies don't match, we're probably not a good fit. And that's the other bad thing about our industry. Uh, very, very rarely will advisors have the courage to tell advise, to tell their clients no. Yeah. Um, I, I've been very fortunate enough to have, to be successful enough uh, to tell clients no uh, yeah. and, and tell them why. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's worked out really well. So yeah, to answer your original question, have we ever had to fire a client? Yeah, but it's, it's very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Usually there's, there's a middle ground or, you know, we agree to part ways, uh, but very rarely is, have you, have you ever had, have I ever had to tell a client, listen, I can't work with you anymore. I'm turning your clients or turning your assets over to home office and then you can be free to move them wherever you want. Okay. So what ended up happening with that client? Did you just go find somebody else? Yeah. So, you know, the funny <laughs> thing is Christian with that, the funny thing is like, you know, we, we, we talked about it. I, I, and I made her a lot of money. Okay. I mean, I made her a lot of money for like four or five months and she left anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Because she wanted, to, again, she wanted to buy stuff that like, again, no reasonable investor would yeah. have gone into. And again, her history had been super conservative. Her history had been, you know, no risk. And she literally, if you were thinking of like a pendulum, like she went literally 100% the other way. Um, mm-hmm. So like I said, I made a lot of money for her over yeah. a four to six month period. And then she left anyway, because she wanted to be even more risky. And I was like, okay, you're, you do you. All right. What do you, what do you advise people who, you know, are looking for financial advisors? What, what kind of questions should they be asking? Yeah, the very first thing that they should go to mm-hmm. uh, is a website. Uh, and literally, if you Google it, uh, all you have to do is Google broker check. Yeah. Uh, and what broker check is, uh, is a website that's run by the regulators. Uh, so we're regulated uh, by uh, an organization called FINRA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's their website. Uh, so you can type in the name of the person that you're talking to. And the very first thing you should look at is if they have any disclosures on their record. Um, you know, disclosures can be anywhere from, you know, they've had client complaints about them. Uh, you know, they've been terminated from firms or they've been yeah. fired from mm-hmm. firms, uh, or it could be even personal financial information on there. So unfortunately in our industry, if you declare a bankruptcy, we have to disclose that to clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be really the first thing that you want to check. And, and the one thing I will say, you know, <laughs> I know a lot of the, the attitude in my industry is if you ever declare bankruptcy, you may as well just quit uh, the industry because no one will ever want to work with you. Yeah. I, I know specifically of a guy that I worked with who had uh, had to declare bankruptcy because he had a business that went under well before he even got into the industry. Yeah. Um, but he has to disclose that and that's on his record for the rest of his life. So what you really want to look for there are complaints 
uh, customer complaints or if they've ever been fired for any reason. But that's the very first part. Uh, go to BrokerCheck. And it's, unfortunately, it's not BrokerCheck.com. The web address is really, really complicated. But if you just Google BrokerCheck, uh, it'll get you there. And then just search for that person's name, find out, you know, uh, if they've ever had any complaints or anything like that. That's step number one. Uh, mm -hmm. Step number two, uh, you want to make sure they're at a reputable firm. Uh, there are a ton of companies, uh, especially in the, in the Northeast, like around uh, New York, a ton of companies. Uh, and, and I'm going to be facetious here, but uh, somewhere like, you know, Joe's Stock Shop. Yeah. You want to stay away from places like that. I don't care how slick they are, how, how smart they may sound. You want to stay away from those. Uh, generally, you want to stay with bigger firms. Um, you know, again, I, I have to avoid naming names, but uh, bigger firms with, with large backings. Uh, because if they are associated with those bigger firms, uh, they're, they're, it means that most, most likely they're being supervised. Uh, and what that means in mm -hmm. our industry is if they're being supervised is they have to do everything that is compliant, uh, above board, and that's legal uh, and, and legal to the extreme. So I'm not saying that, you know, the, the Joe's stock shop is doing things illegally. Uh, but what I mean by supervision is there is actually a dedicated supervisor that's like reviewing this person's paperwork, reviewing this person's emails, reviewing this person's documentation on stuff. Uh, there is just a different level of expertise needed at, at these firms versus others. Uh, so that would be the next step. And then after that, uh, it's really about personality fit. Uh, you want to ask them about their investment philosophy. You know, talk to me about, you know, what do you do in down markets? What do you do in up markets? Um, how do you manage tax consequence of the portfolio? How important are expenses to you in your portfolio? Uh, these are all questions you want to ask. Uh, a lot of advisors will try to uh, bludgeon you with their educational background. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of advisors out there with designations. Uh, and the firm that I work at has a lot of these guys where they literally have 15 designations after their name. Um, mm. Really, the only one that matters is CFP. Uh, that's a certified financial planner. Yeah. Um, that is an important designation to have. I would not necessarily exclude someone uh, that doesn't have that designation, especially someone with a lot of experience. Uh, you know, and, and full disclosure, uh, I do not have my certified financial planning designation, even though I've been doing this for 24 years. Uh, I'm finally getting around to doing it. Uh, the last, you know, 19 years I've been raising kids. Uh, yeah. you know, it, it was one of those things where do I study or do I spend time with my kids? Uh, you know, now most of my kids are older. My first one's off in college and I have two middle schoolers. I'm finally getting some, some time to do some more studying. So I'm probably going to end up getting that designation too. Um, it is an important one. Um, I wouldn't let you, let anyone dazzle you with all the others. Uh, yeah. there's all kinds of letters, uh, and some of these tests that people take for these, I mean, literally my, my, my seventh graders could pass uh, that test. Uh, so really the big one is CFP. Uh, CFA is another one uh, that's chartered financial analyst. That's another good designation to have. Uh, but those are the two big ones, uh, CFP and CFA. Uh, and then, like I said, it's, it comes down to personality fit, uh, what their service model is. And you as an individual investor, how often do you want to meet with them? Uh, some advisors will only meet with you once per year. Some will meet with you every single quarter. Uh, how often do you want to be contacted? Uh, how easy is it to get a hold of someone in their office? Are they just one person uh, as an advisor shop or do they have a whole team behind them? 
Uh, and again, I'm not saying one is better than the other. Uh, it really, I've seen successful advisors run both of those types of firms. One not have any assistant at all, and one have four or five assistants behind them. Uh, I think both models have merits and both have their value. But again, this is where it comes down to that individual investor uh, and really knowing what you want out of that relationship? Do you want hands-on service? Uh, do you want a phone call back within 24 hours if you leave a message for somebody? Uh, more than likely, the bigger teams are gonna be able to provide that versus an individual person. Awesome. Where can people find you? If they're, you know, they, they, you know, they're listening and they're like, John sounds you know, very yeah. knowledgeable and somebody I could trust. Yeah, so if you, uh, the website that you wanna to go to for me uh, is uh, Riverwalk, excuse me, riverwalkwealthadvisors.nm for Northwestern Mutual.com. So again, riverwalk, just like it sounds, wealthadvisors.nm.com. Uh, and you know, I'm right there on team on there. You can see my whole team there. Uh, we got a, a decent sized staff and, and uh, you know, You know, uh, you know, if you just Google uh, John, uh, I'm sure you can contact me through LinkedIn as well. Um, I, I think I'm the only, there's only a handful of John Faircloths out there. Uh, but uh, yeah, LinkedIn is, a, is another great place to find me as well. Can you, yeah, can you repeat the LinkedIn? My, my internet kind of... Yeah, uh, so you, yeah, yeah, so if you just, if you uh, go to LinkedIn and search for John Faircloth, uh, there's only a handful of us out there. I'm the one uh, that's the financial advisor. There's a couple of them out there, but I'm the only financial advisor that's John Faircloth out there. And how about like Instagram? Yeah, you, Insta, I think it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think it's, let me double check here, but I'm pretty sure it is John underscore the letter P underscore Faircloth. Uh, John P Faircloth with the underscores between the initials. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, anybody, it doesn't matter what state they're in or do, should, do they need to be in, in North? Yeah. So they can be, uh, they can be in any state. Uh, the, the caveat that I would add to that, if I'm not licensed in that state, uh, I would need to get uh, licensed in that state before we have a conversation uh, about investments. Uh, but that's a fairly simple process for me. It takes 24, 48 hours to get licensed in a state. Uh, but I'm probably licensed in, in, a, in a lot of states. Um, but if someone wanted to uh, in a state that I was not licensed in, uh, that's a fairly simple process to me. We would just have to hold off on having any investment discussions before uh, I got licensed there. But again, quick, easy process for me. 24 hours. Yeah. And you know, you, you touched on this. Um, yeah. The whole, the whole thing in Eastern Europe, how, you know, what is that, is that going to surely affect us? Yeah, so the, the biggest issue for us is, isn't necessarily the economic impact on the globe. Uh, so if you were to add in Russia's economy and Ukraine's economy, and just assume that those economies uh, ceased to exist tomorrow, doesn't really affect the global economy. Uh, mm -hmm. They're on a relative basis. They're very, very tiny economies. And again, I should emphasize this is 100% my opinion, uh, not the opinion of uh, you know, Riverwalk or Northwestern Mutual. Yeah. Um, um, now, where it does become a problem, um, Russia exports a lot of oil and natural gas. 
uh, between Russia and the Ukraine, the statistic I heard yesterday was that they also produce 25% of the global wheat production. So we're already having some inflation numbers here in the U.S. that we haven't seen in 40 years. Um, you know, the highest number since 1982. It seems like every single month we keep hearing that. Uh, and that's really the last time we had an inflationary spike. So when you, when you take oil and gas uh, and see the prices of it today near all-time highs, uh, that feeds into more and more inflation. Because uh, unfortunately, we're still in a place where uh, all goods and services are probably transported using oil or natural gas, even ships. Um, there, aren't, there aren't a whole lot of green ways to move product from one place to another. So that all bleeds into the prices that you and I pay at the grocery store. Uh, it, pays, it, it bleeds into prices that we're paying at, at whatever store we shop at. Yes. Um, and so all of that, all of that's going to feed into more and more inflation. Uh, and then you count in the whole wheat thing uh, and what wheat is used in uh, nearly everything uh, as a filler, yeah. even in some, in some cases, uh, that's the biggest risk uh, is inflation. Now it's interesting. A lot of the inflation numbers that we're seeing coming out of China right now, uh, it, it seems as if their inflation may have peaked uh, and is actually coming off. And that would be critically important for us. Uh, as you probably are aware, a lot of the stuff that we import comes from China. Yeah. Uh, so as long as they're not raising the prices on the stuff that we're bringing into the country, uh, that may give us a little bit of pause here on our inflation, number one. Number two, uh, I know this is a controversial statement in terms of you know, how inflation uh, really came to be. There, is, there are two distinct camps. One, you know, I, I think, has been debunked for, for, for the most part uh, that talks about supply chain issues. Uh, those are true. They do exist, uh, but they're not the number one cause of it, uh, of the inflation. The other part uh, is that we did too much economic stimulus. I, I'm of the mm -hmm. camp that we did. Both of those are, are, are at play. So it's really just really quickly talking about supply chains. Uh, yeah, there are indexes out there um, that really, really smart people have created that gauge how long it takes to move a product from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. uh, and right now we're at all-time highs. So it, it's taking us longer in 2022 to move a product from point A to point B than it did in the year 2000. Wow. Totally ridiculous that, that it's taking this long to do this stuff, right? So the supply chain issue is legitimate. However, uh, we probably, and again, this is 100% my opinion, uh, we probably overstimulated the economy at a time when the store shelves were already empty. So if you think about all the COVID lockdowns, I mean, we shut down, and when I say we, I talk about humans, not just the US. I mean, factories were shut down across the globe. Uh, people mm -hmm. didn't go to work for months. Uh, we weren't pulling you know, raw minerals out of the earth. Uh, literally, we, we didn't make anything for like six months. So yeah, of course the shelves are going to be empty, but then we put it, all this cash in people's hands and told them to go buy stuff when the store shelves were already empty. So if you think about that, just from an economic perspective, let's just say that you were making bubble gum, right? Um, you don't have any bubble gum to sell because your distributor, the guy that's making it for you, it's like, I, I can't get anybody to work for me, COVID. Uh, so now you're left with less and less gum, but you have people coming to you and saying, listen, I want to buy it, I want to buy it, I want to buy it. So naturally, you're going to raise your prices because you don't have enough 
to sell, but you have had it's supply and demand, right? You have people wanting to buy more and more of your product, but you don't have enough product to sell. Now your distributor on the other hand is saying to you, listen, Christian, you know, with all these lockdowns, you know, people are asking for more money. I got to pay my employees more. It's costing me more to get these supplies and stuff. I got to raise my prices. So now your margins are going down. So now you raise your prices even more. That's essentially what's going on here right now. Uh, We have this total breakdown of the ability to get product from point A to point B. And that's affecting our ability to sell things to the end consumer. When all that happens, you're going to see some inflation. And that's what we're experiencing right now, especially with cars. I mean, good luck trying to buy a new car right now. Uh, I know back in the day, some people, I personally hate negotiating uh, buying a new car. I know some people live for it. I hate (laughs) it. Um, But right now, if you walk onto a car lot, you're paying MSRP. You're paying whatever that sticker says, and you're going to be happy to do it because otherwise you're not getting a car. Um, That's part of the price increases, right? The, 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 the car dealers don't need to discount their prices right now because they don't have enough cars. Like, well, why would they discount a car to uh, a buyer today when they know a buyer tomorrow is going to pay MSRP because they have to buy a car. Yeah. Uh, they don't need to discount. So that's, that's kind of what we're running into. So the, to wrap this up uh, in terms of the inflation story, uh, once those supply chains start to come back online, uh, we are starting to see that it's going to take months and months and months to do it. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, once we start to see store shelves full again, and if you if you look at the inventory numbers in our economy, uh, the inventories are really starting to creep back up to where they were pre-COVID, which is a good thing. So the shortages are slowly going away. Once the shortages are gone, then it's just a matter of restocking the shelves, and then we're good to go. So the only other aspect of that then is the excess cash in the system. So the number that I've been, I consistently hear from a number of different sources is right now in the United States, there's about $2.5 trillion in money market accounts. So that's just cash, like savings accounts Mm -hmm. that was not there before COVID started. Mm. It's a lot of money. Um, Once store shelves start to get refilled and car lots start to get refilled, that money's going to get spent down and then we're done. Uh, so I don't think this is a 1970s style spiral type of inflation. That was a completely different inflationary environment caused by a completely different set of circumstances. This should be more temporary. And what I mean by that is it's not going to take a decade. Yeah. Uh, like the whole, all of the 70s was about inflation, the whole 10 years. I don't think it's going to take us 10 years to work through this. It might take another year or two. Uh, so it's going to be a slower uh, a slower wind down, but I also don't think we're in for 1970s style inflation either. Yeah. Is I hope or not, because that's that's that right. would be devastating for everybody. Definitely, and you know, it's uh, yeah, it sounds we're we're in a tough time. Definitely, uh, COVID hit hit us, and the money that's in the market. Um, what do you think about? buying homes right now is that a, a good place to you know put the cash you know, yeah you know homes are always a are always a tricky investment right because living here in florida and again i've only i've only lived here for 10 months but you know i i hear stories all the time in fact i literally had a conversation with somebody yesterday who bought a home in 2006 uh right at the height of the last market bubble 
Uh, and it's only in the last three or four months that she actually has made money on that property. So she's lived in that property now for 16 years and finally only now is making money. So you, you have to be careful uh, in this environment. There's a lot of markets out there that are really, really overheated. Um, that being said, with interest rates still at all time lows, um, you know, it's really hard to tell people not to buy a home right now, because if you can lock in a mortgage rate, even at 3.75, and yeah, I know mortgages were at 2.75 a year ago. The very first mortgage my wife and I ever had in 1997 was 7.5%, and we were thrilled to get it, because a couple of months before that, they were at 8%. Uh, when I first started working in this industry in 1998, I had people with 10% mortgages. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole generation of people out there right now that believe that these ridiculously low interest rates are some God-given right. It, that That is not the case. Uh, yeah. Interest rates are going to go back up. I don't know when, uh, but they're not going to stay low forever. Uh, so to answer your question, yeah, it depends on the market, uh, depends on the situation. Um, you, but you, it's definitely after the price increases we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months, you have to be careful. Um, you have to be uh, smart about it. And you know, your local, you know, your local um, real estate trends better than I would. Uh, so, you know, Chicago may be a really good buy uh, here in Tampa right now. There's just not enough housing. It's a supply okay. demand issue. Yeah. It's, a, it's I think that's a nationwide issue. Yeah. It's low inventory. Well, and that's just, and, and for years, right, if you look at the numbers, we underbuilt here coming out of 2008. Uh, we way overbuilt in the early 2000s because everybody was making too much money. Uh, and then we stopped building homes. We stopped building homes for like four years. Uh, and, and this whole time, there's this massive generation that people call the millennials, right, mm -hmm. that are all coming online now to buy. So millennials have delayed family formation. They've delayed purchasing houses for the most part. Again, when you're talking about the, the entire demographic, they're all coming online. They want to buy homes now, but there's nothing for them to buy because we've underbuilt for the last 13 years. Uh, coming out of the financial crisis. So not only do we have a demographic bubble uh, that are bigger than the baby boomers, that's the big thing. Everyone talks about the baby boomers being this massive generation of millennials are bigger. They're <laughs> bigger. Um, so they're coming online now wanting to buy homes and you combine that with us chronically underbuilding for the last 13 years, it's a perfect storm. Uh, for prices mm -hmm. to continue to go higher. Now, there's limits to that, right? Uh, there aren't many 28-year-old folks out there wanting to buy million-dollar homes. Um, mm -hmm. And that, around the Tampa area, that's pretty much all that's out there right now. Um, it's hard to find affordable housing. Uh, so something has to give here. Either uh, there's some regulations that have to be relaxed uh, in terms of building or incentives that need to be built for more moderately priced homes. Because right now, with if you look at the prices of lumber and building materials and stuff, the only way for these home buyers or home builders to make money is to build eight or nine hundred thousand dollar homes, uh, and that's just not that's just that's not serving society. So something has to break there. Yeah, something definitely does have to break. Um, you know. If you look at all the facts, and I know you, you're, that's your job, that's what you do, research the market and see what it's doing. Um, but historically, historically, through time, mm -hmm. America has done good. Do you think this is different? You know, it's, there are different challenges now, and there's different challenges in every market cycle, and if you go through history, 
um, you know, I think things have changed. So what was really a strong manufacturing economy coming out of World War II, uh, we were one of the few countries in the world that was unscathed. Uh, so, you know, Ford and GM and, and, you know, we were, we were building things coming out of World War II. We helped rebuild the world. Uh, our steel helped rebuild Europe. Our steel helped rebuild Japan. Um, you know, we're not that economy anymore. Um, the thing that concerns me the most is how concentrated some of the wealth has become. And I don't just mean that between, you know, everyday folks like you and me. Uh, I mean that on a, on a larger level, I think banks are far too big. Um, I, I think technology is way too big. I don't think there's enough antitrust regulation in place for some of those industries right now. Uh, when you look at the power that an Apple or a Google or a Microsoft has, uh, I, I think that's far greater uh, than anything we had at the turn of the century back in the 1800s, 1900s, when the last big trust busting uh, went on, when we started to break up like Standard Oil uh, back, you know, 120 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the concentration of power now is worse uh, than it was then. Um, but when you look at the health of the economy overall, uh, could we be doing better? Absolutely. Could we be doing better for more people? Yes. Uh, but I think when you look at how the United States is structured versus the rest of the world, uh, and this is why when people tell me that China is going to overtake us economically, I, I kind of laugh uh, because China has no political freedom. They have no personal property rights. They have no intellectual property rights. Uh, and, and they're completely dominated by the Communist Party. That is not an economy that's going to overtake us ever, in my opinion. Uh, you could say that by sheer size, maybe, but it's going to be fascinating over the next 10 years or so as they try to make this transition from a manufacturing economy to a service economy, which we did over the last 40 years or so. Uh, if you look at a graph, like our manufacturing capacity from 1970 to 2020, that 50 year period, straight down. Our service economy during that same time, straight up. China's going to try to do that now. And without personal property rights, political freedom, uh, and intellectual property rights, yeah. they are not going to get there, in my opinion. So I think America is still the place to be. I think that's where all the innovation happens. Uh, if you look at you know, technology and you look at medical innovation, uh, you look at societal innovation, um, all that happens here. Yeah. You know, Facebook, Amp Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, none of those companies were created in Germany. None of them were created in France. They weren't created in England. They weren't created in Italy or Spain or Portugal. They were created here. Uh, right. There's a reason for that. There's a reason all that talent comes here. When I lived in Redmond, Washington, when I, I used to work in Seattle. Uh, when I lived in Redmond, Washington, Redmond's the home of Microsoft. Uh, all of our neighbors worked for Microsoft, and not one of them was U.S. born. We had people next to us that were from China. We had someone next to us from the Ukraine. We had someone next to us from Bosnia. And these were like re 
ridiculously smart people. Remember how earlier you asked me uh, how I got into this business and I said, uh, you know, I was driving all these investment bankers around and they weren't that much smarter than me. These people were smarter than me uh, <laughs> by, by a lot. Yeah. Uh, these, these data engineers and data scientists and, and, and people with master's degrees in statistics, uh, all these people working in AI, they were way, way smarter than me. Uh, but none of them were from here. They were yeah. all from somewhere else. Yeah. So the, the thing with America is we attract talent from other places. We, we are like the giant vacuum of intellectual capital and intellectual knowledge from the rest of the world. So those people that I mentioned, like from the Ukraine and from China and from Bosnia, when they come here, we're taking all that intellectual capital that could have stayed in those other countries and we brought it here. Yeah. Uh, and they're contributing to our GDP and they're contributing to our economic growth, not their home country's economic growth. Uh, it's not the other way around. Uh, there are some Americans that do work overseas and eventually you know, move there, but uh, all the innovation still happens here. And I think it will continue to do so. Yeah, there's a, you know, that quote that um, good times create weak men or something, and then weak yeah. men create uh tough times yep and uh then tough times create strong so i think yep that's kind of like what we're living in and very very uh, very much so also the market is seasonal uh it's like winter spring yep summer and fall so you know just remember the principles i i think you touched on a great thing you know everybody wants to come to America and why, you know, what America stands for, just freedom, the pursuit of happiness, Yep. you know, those good values. And at the end of the day, that's what, that's what outperforms the, the money, uh, the market, right? The Over values, time, the principles, the, the people, um, and they're, you know, so John, it's been, uh, about an hour now. And you now you, yeah. thank you for coming out onto this podcast and sharing your, your knowledge, you know, you sound very knowledgeable and overall just a very uh, down to earth person down to earth. You know. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the thing, you know, I, I, you know, I have a lot of experience dealing with really, really wealthy people and I, you know, I, I am who I am. Like I said, I grew up in a military brat, uh, lower middle-class upbringing, didn't have anything handed to me. Um, you know, that's not everybody's cup of tea, you know, sometimes, uh, uh, people don't understand where I'm coming from. Uh, when I start to talk to them about investments and stuff, I do tend to be very blunt. Uh, I do tend to give, to shoot people straight. Uh, that's again, part of my upbringing and part of just being from New Jersey. <laughs> you know, that's, that's who we are. Um, but yeah, the one thing I always, I always tell people is, you know, everything that I say to people, it comes from a good place. Uh, it, it comes from their best interests at heart. Uh, and you're always going to get the truth out of me, even if it's uncomfortable. So, uh, I, I try to live by those values and those are the values that I want other people to share with me. Like always give it to me straight. Uh, you know, you don't have to say what I want to hear. I want to hear the truth. And, uh, and that's what you're always good at of me. All right. Well, this, uh, I'm going to wrap this up. So thank yeah. you for, you know, joining us and thank you. Uh, I will I appreciate the time. Yeah. I'll definitely share your links on to, uh, my description awesome. on the social media. Thank you. Yeah, people go sh check you out. Um, do you, yeah. If you want to learn more, just look up John Kirkpatrick. 
All right.